Hello and welcome to the week at work. Uh, this is oh, episode 43, I think. Uh, we're nearly nearly catching up to a full year now with these podcasts. But anyway, um, with me this week, we don't have my co-host Claire O'Connor yet, but she might be joining us midway through this. Um, but who is with me today is our um, our friend and our uh, founder, Stefan O'Neillon, um from Trademark Belfast. We are part of the week. This is the week of work. I haven't said that at the start, but the week of work is part of the uh, Left Block project. Uh, Left Block is a political education and uh, alternative media project that we're trying to build. If you want to know more about it, you can go to patreon.com forward slash Left Block. Um, as usual, what we normally do is we go to the front pages of the papers to have a look and see what's there. I'll do a couple of them here first, and then we'll get into a couple of stories about the North as well, because I think I think most people who've listened to this uh, probably will agree um, to the podcast. If you've listened to the podcast, is that we've neglected the North over the last number of uh, weeks and months. So it's good to have a Northern voice on again. Um, first up on the front typical, page, typical free staters. Just sort of throw that in. Carry on. <laughs> well, we maybe I'll bring up a, an article that's in the Sunday Indo about Michael Collins in a minute. You can have a have a real latch at us. Um, look, uh, front page of the Sunday Independent this week, we've got Leaving Cert will go ahead and schools set to reopen. There's a little bit in there uh, talking about how uh, Leaving Cert students are to be offered the choice of calculated grades, written examination, or both um, after talks. Uh, there's a, a, as part of that, um, I found this bit interesting because we might not come back to the story, so I'm just going to get it out of the way. Second uh, column, there's a bit there saying the government government sources were adamant last night that it intended to press ahead with the calculated grade written exam uh, option, irrespective of the outcome of talks with the union. I think that's a great way to go about your industrial relations, go into negotiations around this stuff and actually announce before you actually come to an agreement that you're going to do it irrespective of whether you have the workers on side or not. So yeah, obviously our government um, don't really care too much about industrial relations processes or trade unions or workers um, having collective agreements. Um, Another story there is Desmond's works go on despite COVID lockdown. And that article is about uh, our friend, uh, constru- well, uh, he's not really our friend, but Dermot Desmond, um, who has a ma- massive profit- property there on Shrewsbury Road. And while all of the other construction um, sites are out of, out of work because of COVID, he's managed somehow to keep his place going. Um, you can guess how. Uh, I don't think it, it, you need to think about it too much. And then at the bottom, you have the, the stupid weekly column by Brendan O'Connor. We are not a cat. We're just tired. And he's, he's, he's yeah, I didn't even bother reading it, to be perfectly honest, because I think his article <laughs> is absolutely shit. So, um, that's, a kind of, that's a kind of cutting analysis we want on this show, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> so on the front of the business post, no gatherings of over 50 people indoors until autumn events industry warned isn't that great now isn't it wonderful that we had a, a great christmas there for a couple of weeks where everything was open and now most of the rest of the the the, the industries in ireland have to close until the the latter half of the year if they're lucky i mean we're 11 months now without bars being open so um then we have food magnets firm told to remove covid19 cure claims we might get into that a little bit in, in a minute but it's a, a food manufacturer who has a i, I can't remember the name of the Company. I have it in here somewhere, but uh, they have a product, a vitamin drink that they're claiming cures COVID effectively. Um, <laughs> fantastic stuff. Then uh, the Sunday Times uh, talks about Harris speaks to Gardy over Varadkar leak of GP deal. Um, so that's Simon Harris, the former Minister for Health, who hadn't had access to this document at the time he was Minister for Health, but that the um, taun- or the Taoiseach at the time, now Taunish, the Leo Varadkar, leaked to the actual doctors. Uh, and obviously there's questions about the legality of what he did. Uh, <laughs> this is the one that we might come to you on, Stevie, in a couple of minutes. Sinn Féin needs to apologise for IRA, warns Taoiseach. Um, I love this stuff. It, it, you know, I, I was looking at some of them, Borig O'Loughlin um, from Donegal there, Sinn Féin, and he was commenting about how how the Taoiseach Michal Martin just ha- cannot learn a lesson. You know, the constant attacks on Sinn Féin are what led to the demise of his party and the, the lifting of Sinn Féin in the last election, but they just can't bite their tongue at all. Um, 
there's a couple of other ones there. Trump in four-letter row with ally um, and trials for children lift hopes of jab uh, for life. Um, so I'm going to go to Stevie now. I don't know whether you want to comment on that one. The Sinn Féin needs to apologise for IRA, warns Michal Martin, or whether you want to talk to us about some of the other stories you've seen during the week. Uh, well, the big the big story up here is just the well, there's a couple of ones. The biggest is of course the Northern Ireland Protocol row that's kind of rumbling on. It's it's uh, the only you know I'm not big into the he said she said of you know political shenanigans, Dave. You know, but um, the one thing that never disappoints when you live and work in the north is, is unionism. Political unionism just gives you a laugh every fucking day. I mean, I remember being invited over to speak at a Labour Party conference I think 2017 in England, and they were asking like, what's what's going to happen with Brexit in Ireland? I mean, there's there's only and I kind of laid it out then that, well, there was only kind of a couple of options. One is a hard border in Ireland. The other is a border in the IRC. Um, and everyone's known that for four years. But unionism, <laughs> it's its kind of a, it's a political philosophy that's so fucking dumb. It's hard to believe sometimes, you know, and they paint themselves into these little corners and they blame everybody else for having painted them into a corner. And they found themselves in it again. Um, there is only one option, and that's a border in the IRC. Everyone knows it. So, uh, and that's the only option that's going to, come out of this. I think they're talking about tweaking it, but I don't see how they can tweak it. You know, Northern Ireland's in the customs union, it's in the single market. The external board of the EU is in the IRC and that's no real other option on the on the cards. But um Peter Robinson's come out this weekend. I think he's described now as a unionist heavyweight. I don't know if that's re- relative to his like his weights that he's put on during COVID or something like that. But he's 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 coming and says look they'll have to collapse Stormont to get their way. Now what do you think will happen if they collapse Stormont? What do you think the Tories in Westminster are going to do? They're going to go, thanks very much, border down the RSC, and move on. Next thing around the corner, we'll be discussing for a border poll. So unionism is a political philosophy. It's like their political philosophies are a reflection almost of what they're like on this island. They, they painted themselves into that little corner in 1921, and politically they have nowhere to go, you know? Um, and that's that's the story up here. So, uh, yeah, unionism and its incredible levels of dumb fuckery has been keeping us all interested for last week. So the only the big the big story there, I suppose, is if if they threaten to collapse the assembly, what will happen? Though I don't think it'll make much difference to people's lives here, to be honest with you. You know, because obviously, you know, I have connections up north. Um, the last time Stormont was collapsed, um, and we won't get into what it was collapsed over, but you know, from talking to a lot of people up in Derry in particular, it's one of the reasons Sinn Fein saw a big decline in their vote up there, and the SDLP did quite well out of it. Was that a lot of people were pissed off? And that it was collapsed and people were being paid, as, as people were saying, being paid to do nothing, to sit on their arses, having collapsed it over um, the, the, the ash scandal. Like, Do you think that will give the, the big parties a kicking again if it collapses? The only the only party that's going to suffer from that is going to be the DUP. I mean, already um, you can see people deserting the DUP. There was a poll come out last week and it showed the alliance has gone up to like 18 19%. So you've got this emerging pattern um of Sinn Féin as the biggest party, DUP number two, Alliance number three. And that looks like the emerging pattern. So if you collapse things, there's going to be elections. And those elections are going to be progressive in the sense that middle-class unionism, liberal unionism is moving in numbers to the Alliance party. And so the DUP is turning into like the UUP is, which is kind of a rump, a kind of free Presbyterian rump that will have votes, yeah, and it will win seats, but it won't be anywhere near the biggest party over the next five years. So um, that's what the DUP should be worried about. Um, but they're not. And, and because they're, they're kind of caught between the devil and the deep blue sea here, because Itagar Hina Balchina in Irish, you know, between the two May fires, on the one hand, they're losing votes to the TUV, you know, their extreme kind of votes. On the other hand, they're losing middle class votes to the alliance. So they're losing out on both extremes. So the DUP have got one, they're heading in one direction. And that's not, not and that means no DUP as first minister, Sinn Fein first minister and a border poll in six or seven years. So they couldn't be any more stupid in their kind of, they have no strategy. The strategy is always to say no and defend kind of what they have. And they've been doing that for 100 years and you know, t- time's up, I think, on them. We're going to call time on them soon. But they're, they're the ones that will come out of any, any, you know, they'll come out worse than any other party out of any of this, I'd say. Just for our listeners, right, a lot of people won't even, like, the way things are presented down in the free state, as you call it there. Uh, <laughs> I've got other names if you want. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, I mean, most of our listeners will probably understand what we're talking about here. But just for people who don't, you know, it's presented. The North is presented as if there's only two uh, political philosophies, philosophies, and on the back of that, two major parties: Sinn Fein and the DUP. Right? Alliance. Tell us a little bit about their background. What will they object to a border poll? Probably not the same level of 
strength that the DUP would, but what, where do they see the future of, of politics in the North? Well, I mean, parties are a reflection of the people in them, aren't they? And the people in them kind of affect the policies and affect the culture of those parties. The Alliance was always a kind of fairly upper middle class cross-community party. It was it was wealthy. The people who voted for it came from wealthy areas. It was never a, it was never a party of bigotry, of sectarianism, but it was kind of a unionist party. You know, it wanted to preserve the union, but it wanted to share Northern Ireland. The DUP have had 20 years to, to share Northern Ireland. They've absolutely failed to show that they can do that. So people said, well, that's not a workable solution. Northern Ireland is not a workable state. It's not a sustainable place. You can't, it's not culturally, politically or economically sustainable. So constitutionally, the, the, the kind of game is up. And now we're having a debate about what the future is. And the Alliance Party has shifted with that debate as liberal unionists have joined and, other, and Catholics and, and, and also some kind of nationalists have, have, would vote for the Alliance. So the, you always thought that someone would emerge from unionism that would be the person to bring unionism into United Ireland. But it looks like the alliance is going to be uh, that party, I think, anyway, that they're going to have a strong voice on whatever comes next. In terms of their position on the border poll, they say if there's a border poll's call, they'll, they'll discuss it and they'll have. So they're not anti-border poll. They're not even anti-United Ireland. Yeah. They say they are a party that reflects both unionist and nationalist aspirations. So that's what they're saying anyway. But they are pulling in votes, I mean, quite significantly. So you, you can you could see them as the third biggest party easily in the next election. Now, I'm not I'm not saying that's a definite, but if it happened, I wouldn't be surprised. And they're pulling in people I know and work with, the liberal, educated, pro-European, middle-class unionists. They're going to the alliance. Um, they're not happy in the DUP. I mean, you know, you've got people like Edwin Poots in there. Like, I mean, you know, he, he thinks the world's 6,000 years old. You know, he thinks that Jesus wandered around with dinosaurs. I mean, you can't, you can't take people like that seriously, Dave. You can't put people like that in government for too long. I mean, eventually you're going to see food. So, you know, a lot, lot of people here recognising the DUP for what they are, and they know that the DUP will not be able to handle the constitutional debates that are inevitable, that are facing what well, Scotland's going to go, isn't it? We've all, we've all, we all think Scotland's going to leave the United Kingdom. When Scotland goes, the debate about the North will speed up. You know, I think we're at that tipping, you know, that kind of tipping point politically when the boulder just goes over the, the top of the crown on the hill and it just races down. I think we're kind of getting there with, with the constitutional arrangements on this island, you know. I think we're going to see big changes in the next 10 years. And, and then with that, right, because of your role um, and Trademark's role and the anti-sectarian element of this, I have, my next question is, is sort of an important one, and I know we've spoken about it ourselves privately, but just again for the podcast, like, what are the dangers in all of this occurring? Like, the DUP, the, the extremists, let's say, in the DUP and, and in unionism, is this a real threat to the uh, peace, the relative peace that we have in the North if the DUP declines to such an extent that, you know, people are feeling isolated, alone? What, what, what's, what's the next step for them? In, in the same way, there's always lots of stereotypes, isn't there, about the North, um, particularly when you're trying to tell a if you're trying to tell a nuanced story, that those stereotypes fall apart. I mean, the lumpen proletariat that, that is the loyalist working class is quite a diverse group of people and communities in there. I have conversations every week with, with people from loyalist backgrounds and working loyalist organisations who are talking to us about, you know, the inevitability of the constitutional changes on this island. But they're not going to come out publicly and do that because it's too early. But it's happening. It's happening behind closed doors. There are others who refuse to talk about that issue that won't have any debate about that. So there's different, you know, there's different nuanced arguments happening. In terms of falling back into like some sort of civil war. I think that's that's nonsense, of course. You know what I mean? I mean, there's this idea that somehow the people in Ireland, particularly from Britain, you get this view all the time, don't you? They're, oh, fuck me, look at the Irish, they're about to go at it again. As if we're like pre dead you know, there's some sort of genetic predisposition to violence from the people who had a fucking 250-year empire, you know, committing genocide across the globe, accusing the Irish of being violent. It makes me fucking laugh, but there's going to be no civil war here. I mean, to be brought brutal about it or blunt about it. I mean, loyalism wouldn't have survived without the support of the British state. The idea that loyalism wasn't being supported and armed and controlled by elements of the British intelligence and armies, is we all know that to be the case. I don't think that's going to be the case now. I think Britain probably eventually wants out. What did your man say last year, um, Boris's advisor? I hope Northern Ireland falls into the fucking sea. That's kind of the attitude I, I imagine of the British, British capitalist class for the most part. So I don't think there's going to be any... That's not to say there won't be enough upsurge in violence. We've seen that in the UVF, East Belfast, behaving abominably over the last few weeks. We've seen a death threat against a journalist this weekend, Patricia Devlin, a really good journalist, and they, they've, there was graffiti went up with her name on it and a target. So they'll continue to do that. But then we have to have a debate about special branch and their links in loyalism and who their assets are and who they're paying and who's doing this work. So there's there's a lot of dirty shenanigans in the background going on here, Dave, you have to be aware of. But in terms of a break of violence, I don't think so, no. 
I mean, I don't know whether you want to get into that, but hold on. Just before you go on, uh, <laughs> you just mentioned that British government and, and uh, was involved in the troubles, really? Apparently, because, apparently, well, someone, uh, told, someone told me that. Apparently, I'm not. Well, I also, don't believe that. I mean, the Britons are fucking hard. I mean, they just spread well, democracy well, well, and goodwill around the world and bring home fucking tea, don't they? And export cricket. Yeah, yeah, but well, wait, the Taoiseach is calling on Sinn Féin to apologise for, for, for the IRA, and he hasn't said anything about the British government apologising for anything that they've done. So clearly it's not on the on the agenda down here. It's not on the, the map. Well, that constant attack on Sinn Féin is getting tired, and, and I don't, does it even work down there? Does, does, does the attack on Sinn Féin because of its past and because of the troubles work? I don't think it does. I imagine, actually, it does damage to the T-shirt and does damage to Fianna Fáil and Fianna Fáil every time they come out with that nonsense. Because people are like, would you fucking give it up? You know, it's not working. It's not winning. It's not winning them votes. I imagine that's losing them votes and pushing people away from them too. And so, but no, the yeah, the, the North is it is a it is in a delicate position, I suppose. But you can't compare what's happening now to to the troubles or anything like that. The idea, and, and it's that myth, the, the myth that the myth of two warring tribes of Catholics and Protestants, and the, the British have managed to create post peace process. So they're somehow this referee between these two warring tribes. It's absolute fucking nonsense. The British state was the main player in all of this. Um, they managed to kind of paint themselves out of the conflict quite cleverly, actually. And we have to remind ourselves and remind everybody else that no, they were a, they were a core part of the uh, of the troubles and of the violence that happened here. I mean, the, the, that last week of that horrendous political policing event when there was a families trying to commemorate the Ormer Road massacre back in '92. I mean, the guns that were used in that were brought in from South Africa by a British agent. A paid British agent brought those guns into into the country to use in that attack. So you know, we have to remember that. The British state has a hand in everything here um, and we shouldn't let them off the hook. So the teacher should be asking questions about the role of the British state and the troubles and the legacy of that conflict. Of course, they don't bother with that at all, do they? They just like to attack Sinn Féin. So, um, yeah. Uh, before I go on, right, so before I move on, and I will move on to some of the stories in the papers again in a couple of seconds, but you mentioned Pat- Patricia Devlin, the journalist from the Sunday World, getting death threats. Can you tell us a little bit about that? It's been going on for some time now, um, particularly at a particular section of, 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 of the paramilitary world and a particular person, or not the name because I value my life, um, but we know who the person is. Um, but there, 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 was a, there was a man um, uh, murdered, brutally murdered a couple of years ago, Ogilvians, uh, by elements of that particular uh, paramilitary group. And it's kind of rumbling on from then. And Patricia Devlin's a journalist of Sunday World, and she's... She writes about them. She investigates. She and, and and that's what this is about, really. The problem there, of course, is um, you know this, this isn't a normal place. It's not a normal state when you can have loyalist paramilitaries, as they did two weeks ago, ten days ago now, marching through East Belfast, threatening a community centre. And it was all caught on camera. And they caught the police there. There was like three or four policemen and about twenty or thirty. They weren't armed. We couldn't see they were armed. You, you know, masked members of apparently the UVF just marching through East Belfast, threatening community centres. I mean, spraying graffiti on walls, threatening people, threatening mayhem. Um, and those same, some of those same people are, are special branch assets. So let's have a debate about that. Let's have a debate about the role of the police service in the north of Ireland. Now, many would argue that the, the changing of the REC to the PSN has been a relatively successful part of the peace process. And I would kind of tend to agree with bits of that. There's, there's a large part of that, that police service that's still a political force and used politically. And we can see that. I mean, even not just the Ormer Road uh, massacre arrest where your man Mark, Mark Sykes, who, who survived the massacre as a young man, he's the only man ever arrested linked to that murder. One of the survivors, like, if you think of it, you know, he's the only person who's ever been arrested linked to the massacre, and he's a fucking survivor of it. And he was arrested at the demonstration last week, at the commemoration, sorry. And yet yesterday at Stormont, there were thousands of people on sleds sliding down the snow-covered hills of Stormont, breaking all sorts of COVID rules. <laughs> but there were the middle classes from the suburbs. So that's okay then. So political policing here is still a big issue and it really needs to get sorted out. And bringing in an English cop to do it, I'm not sure that was the best idea because he's, he's really he's really fucked up at every stage so far. So I can see him being replaced shortly, you know, but who by and who would want that job? Maybe they should give it to, to you, Dave. You'd be good. <laughs> Fuck off. Um, <laughs> so we have a great little conveyor belt of policing there. English officers are brought over to the north uh, to, to run their system, and the northern police officers are brought down to the south with two Harris to run our system. So it's very um, good of the Irish state to, you know, to put an MI5 asset right at the heart of their state. <laughs> uh, we're all about reducing unemployment up north. <laughs> um, look, 
I'll, I'll move on to another um, article here. There's one in the Sunday Business po- or Sunday Time or Sunday Independent. Uh, quarantine hotels to hire private police. I think this is a really interesting one again. Um, unlike some countries, but like others. So uh, we had on our podcast a couple of weeks ago. I don't know if you heard of Stevie or any, or our listeners. We had Joe Caroline talking about uh, uh, the New Zealand approach and the zero COVID stuff that mm. they've done over there, which was quite interesting. That. Um, their most recent outbreak, other than this week's one, but the so they had zero COVID to have all their events open, everything running perfectly. And then all of a sudden, a rich fucker went overseas on a holiday because he could pay the fine when he came back. And again, they had to lock down everything else because that person brought it back. Now, they they did actually quarantine, but it was beyond the quarantine period that, that the infection broke out. So they, he actually infected people after the 14-day quarantine. But we're looking at doing a sort of a similar system here with fines for people coming back if they haven't, you know, uh, minded themselves mm-hmm. or, or put themselves into isolation. So, um, no, but in the article, right, so quarantine hotels to hire private police, they're saying that the, the hotels are that the the hotels that are actually participating in this. And this this is an interesting point in itself. The Irish Hotels Federation is currently working with Folger Ireland to update the list of hotels offering to provide quarantine services. Right, and it goes through this about the negotiations and the talks between government and uh, the the Hotel Federation. And what struck me immediately was. Where are SIP2 in this? What, where are the unions, the voice for the workers in those hotels and the risks that they're going to be put at and all the rest of it? Because they seem to be lost in it. They're not, they're not mentioned in the article mm. once. It's between the business owner and the government. And then the government are saying you might have to hire some private police to, to make sure that people aren't doing this, that and the other. And they're saying that people will be confined to the rooms. The food will be put outside of the rooms. And if you smoke, you'll have to be brought down by a private security guard, escorted and then brought back up. And again, who who are these security guards? What provisions are they going to have to protect themselves and all the rest of it? But anyway, the numbers are 800 in the last week, 832 people arrived into Dublin airport from government designated high risk countries over a five day period. So not even within a week. So from 832 people coming from high risk countries. And this this to me strikes the chord of why we need to really need to go after the zero COVID strategies. This is a half assed measure to try and bring in quarantining only for I think it's 33 countries. So if you come from any other country outside of that, you're free to go your way. You're asked, can you isolate yourself at home up to €2,500 of a fine or a six-month prison sentence if if you don't comply with it? But it's half-arsed. Like, I mean... If you're going to all, all of the measures are half on. I mean, the British and the Irish governments are following very similar tracks, aren't they? They seem to be doing similar things all of the time, and they're, they're always late. They're always bringing restrictions too late. They open up too early. They bring in half-assed measures, and you, and you wonder what what's what's at the base of it. Now, obviously, we know they want to keep the economy open because they're neoliberals. They're pro-capital. They're pro-profit, and if people aren't working, profits aren't being made. But on top of that, you know, it's based on the idea that we'll we'll keep the numbers that are dying low but just low enough to, to not overwhelm the hospitals. That's their entire strategy. As long as our hospitals aren't completely overwhelmed, we don't really give a shit if a few more thousand people die. That's the reality. So it really is quite sociopathic when you think about it, that they don't really care about the numbers of deaths. They just don't want the they don't want bodies lying, lying in corridors. They don't want like morgues overflowing people. So it's a bit like, I remember, the, I can't remember his name there, the British minister, minister that said, Northern Ireland's okay because we have an acceptable level of killing. And he said, you know, once you get to that status quo, an acceptable level of death, and that's what this COVID strategy of the Irish and British governments is about. It's an acceptable level of deaths. That yeah. seems to be entirely, and if you understand that, then you understand everything else. Yeah. And and like even in the UK, they, you guys have uh, drafted up a 33 red list countries, which, you know, where people arriving from those countries must quarantine as well. So it must be similar to our one. Um, but it's saying that the cost is going to be borne by the passenger themselves, irrespective of why they're traveling, of up to €2,000 for a 10-day stay uh, in the UK, that is. So you'd expect it to be a lot more. It's the same, I think, now, isn't it? <laughs> Probably about ten grand if yeah. you want to fucking come home for a funeral or something. like. Um, yeah, and if you don't do abide by it, it's an €11,000 fine or £10,000 fine, uh, and up to 10 years for a breach in the UK. Whereas down here, 
the breach is six months. So uh, 10 years, or it shows you even that it's, it's a sad reflection when Boris Johnson's government has taken it that much more seriously than that down here. Well, they, well, they are and they aren't in the sense that they've, they've introduced that hotel quarantining, but no, nothing's been set up apparently. The website crashed last week. You can't get into the website if you want to do it. The hotels aren't even set up and ready. There's no security employee to do that. As you said, the workers are going to work in these places haven't agreed anything. So the whole thing's just a, a balls up as usual, you know. And the, the, the variants that are coming in, I mean, there was a, bloke interviewed about a month ago on tv and he just come in from south africa and he just walked straight through heathrow airport and out the other side you know um bringing in and you don't know bringing in new variants all the time so everything is half fast because it's kind of meant to be there seems to be two for the british government there's two things one is an acceptable level of deaths so you know as long as we keep that low we don't really give a shit and the other one is making sure that we um Use use COVID as a, as a cover for privatisation and handing over billions of pounds to Tory party donors. That seems to be the only two um, policies they have that underpins all of their, all of their actions so far. You know, yeah. um, so in that sense, they're doing a good job really you know, for themselves and their donors. It will. I'm going to move on. It's stick, sticking with the, the COVID theme to a degree, um, but it's uh, an article there in the Sunday Business Post again. Um, the Strategic Banking Corporation of Ireland has started developing a new funding option for businesses affected by Brexit and COVID, blah, blah, blah. But it's effectively about the state-backed uh, agency providing businesses with more assistance, uh, which is probably needed. Not probably. It is needed to keep businesses going, keep people in employment. But And, and it's uh, this is my use of a segue to talk talk about something that's emerged in the last three weeks or so, which is that workers whose company put them on the temporary wage subsidy scheme last year, which, by the way, the worker gets no option on whether your employer does this, and the employer gets up to 85% of the wages of that worker paid for by the state, uh, the workers now are being told that they have up to 2,600 or more euros worth of, of uh, a revenue bill. Um, when they logged on to the RAS, uh, RAS scheme or the My Account, the online taxation system, the workers are the ones that are being pressed to pay this back. And they've been told, so it's all, it's all fine. Revenue are telling them it's fine. You can pay it back over four years. We're going to reduce your tax credits, all for a benefit that your employer got. So what we have is a situation here, and I've spoken to a number of workers in Macaulay's Pharmacy, in Boots, where Mandate Trade Union have members in those companies. Those workers all went to work during the pandemic, risking their health and all the rest of it, their company, uh, their companies paid them their net pay instead of their gross pay because that's what the government told the company to do and we'll pay you a proportion of it. So I, I was trying to explain this to a couple of people during the week about what's happened here. So the workers would have, say, just for argument's sake, in, in 2019, they might have earned, uh, say, €15,000. And in 2020, during covid their employ and and so they've earned fifteen thousand euros, but after tax, their net pay is ten thousand. Just for argument's sake, COVID hits the temporary wage subsidy scheme set up. Their employer is told, pay them the ten thousand euros net, and we'll give you up to eighty five percent of that. Uh, so already the company has got a benefit of five grand because they're paying workers, you know, that much less. And then they've got a benefit of eighty five percent of the wage itself being paid as well, and the worker who has no choice in it, is told that you now have to pay tax on the €10,000 that you got. So some people are down an awful lot of money and will be down an awful lot of money for the next couple of years. So when we talk about the supports that businesses get, the supports that workers get is completely contrary to what's going on. Uh, that you know, Low-paid retail and pharmacy workers are subsidising their lower pay from their employer by the government. It's an incredible sort of a, a system that they put in place. Now, Revenue have set up, by the way, a, a page on their website to allow their employer voluntarily to pay the, the, the taxes for their employees if they want to volunteer. But what I do know is that most companies are saying, not, not, our, not a dispute with us you have, it's a dispute you have with Revenue. Go away. Um, you would nearly think, you would nearly think, Dave, every time you tell me one of these stories, you know, you would nearly think that the government represents capital and not Labour, wouldn't you? That the government doesn't actually represent all of its citizens, citizens, but just one tiny class of people in the country. <laughs> or am I just being a cynic? You're just being a cynic. Yeah. An absolute cynic. I mean, did, we covered this on the podcast last week, but um, it's the story of FBD, the insurance company who was taken to court by four pubs and um, uh, for refusing to pay out on um, their, their insurance, uh, saying that, you know, COVID was an act of God, all that stuff, you know, we don't have yeah. to pay you anything. And of course, those businesses won. 
uh, in court. So FBD do, does have to pay it out. What's interesting about this article here is um, that uh, FBD, first of all, is saying that the pub court decision is limited to specific policies. So it's saying that unless you're a pub, we're only paying you out because there's been no, you know, retail or no restaurant that's taken us to court on the same ground. So this doesn't apply to you. But also what they've done here, um, say, and Pierce Doherty has a good quote in this about, about what they're up to here is they're also saying they'll pay, they've offered to pay reasonable costs to the companies that took the case, right? The four pubs, which come to up to 1 million euros, right? But we'll only pay reasonable costs is what they're saying. So what that's effectively doing is the the those companies who took the case they're going to pay for the solicitors that dealt with FBD insurance and the the, the pub solicitors. They're not going to pay for any of the costs from the pubs to their own solicitors which comes to as I said 1 million euros. But it's putting a severe chill on all of the other industries because if you're a restaurant that didn't get paid from FBD, now you're being told that you have to go to court and try and win individually your case. Uh, and if you do win your case, you're going to have a bill of up to 1 million euros on your back that FBD is not going to cover. So, I mean, it's again, even when we take on the insurance industry, they're just screwing everybody over left, right and centre. Um, and and the, Everyone's experience with insurance companies is, is the same across the fucking globe. They're one of the worst aspects of the system, I think. You know, their failure to acknowledge, to pay, to deny claims. It's just, it's, it's part of their policy. It's what they do, isn't it? It's like their first response to any claim is no. And then you have to fight your way through it. They're, they're an absolute nightmare, like, you know. And it's one of those kind of parasitic ways the system has of just extracting money from you that you know you'll never see again. Yeah, Um I'm going to uh, go now to a, a really interesting story. Uh, Sunday Business Post this time. And uh, government probes meat factories and RTE on self-employed workers, which I found the most interesting story of the week, to be honest. Um, now, I have, uh, we all obviously knew that both the uh, meat factories and the RTE were using bogus self-employed contracts, as they're called. Um, but this investigation is really interesting because they've already gone uh, these welfare officers um, in for the Department of Social Protection have gone and interviewed a lot of people in RTE to find out what's going on. Um, but it, it describes fairly well what, what the companies who do this type of bogus self-employment are up to. Basically, if you're a worker in RTE or anywhere, um, your employer pays an 11%, approximately 11% PRSI rate, social insurance rate, and you pay 4%. Whereas if they designate you as uh, self-employed, you pay 4% and the employer has no costs whatsoever. So they're making a saving of 11%. And obviously, this is the whole capitalist system of drive the, drive everybody to bottom because people have to compete. One meat factory has to compete with the next meat factory, has to compete with the next one. So they're all at it. And there seems to be thousands upon thousands of people who are in these scenarios, um, uh, which is really interesting. But it's the RTE stuff that they're uh, that the NUJ... And the RTE trade union group are calling for um, to basically to, to, to get the self-employed contracts, get people, get, get rid of them. Get, there's no need for them anymore. Um, people are actually workers and you're just exploiting them. Um, and then there's another article here I'll flip onto fairly quickly because it's on the next page in the, in the business post. And this is about Dara O'Brien, Fianna Fáil TD uh, and Minister for Environment. O'Brien caught between Irish water and a hard place. And it's, again, another really interesting one about how the government are trying to get all, well, Irish water want all of the local service workers who are still employed by local councils across the country. They're trying to get them to move over to Irish water permanently. And those workers themselves are saying no, through SIP2 and the other unions that represent them, we're not going over. And they're actually demanding that they get a referendum on the public ownership of uh, of Irish water, um, which not what I want myself, uh, but it, it definitely would strengthen the hand. But obviously, um, Fianna Fáil are not too happy about this. And the article talks about how, and you love this, Steve, because of the background with Irish water and right to water and all that sort of stuff. But the article talks about how Minister O'Brien, one of one of the big problems he has is that he has a blog on his website about how he he still wants he wanted to get rid of Irish water several years ago before he was elected. Then he gets in and now he's changed his mind. And apparently that's still proving a bit of a problem for him among those workers. There are 3,000 water workers still based around the city and, and county man, um, uh, councils uh, that he can't get to, to transfer over. But I think it's an interesting one and one that's 
it's it's run and run so far because, you know, as we know, we spoke about it last year. Uh, the referendum on water ownership was supposed to be in the was initially in the Irish program for government with the Green Party and Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael last year, but somebody deleted it uh, from the final text in the last week and deleted all references to it. And we don't. Nobody's explained why. Actually, nobody's actually questioned why, other than this podcast. But it's it's an interesting one again. Um, that did, I they, think, did they also delete reference to CETA? That's a debate for another day, maybe. Uh, no, program well, for government. Well, they, I mean, one of the big controversies around that is the fact that there's an NDA. I mean, Nessa Horgan has been coming out and based, like, you know, basically saying in as few words as possible that they, CETA was specifically left out. Like, it was discussed. It was left out. She can't come out and say that because of the NDA. But, I mean, they had, like, I think that probably shows the inexperience of the Green Party going into those negotiations that... Fine Gael, I'd say, particularly knew by putting in the the commitment to European trade deals that they had them there anyway. They could mm-hmm. let CETA go, you know, insofar as being specifically named. But um, but I've heard some people like CETA isn't actually a trade deal. It's a multi. Uh, Steve, you probably never admitted that, like how it's actually categorised as an under a trade deal. It's like a multi-use or multi. It's a mixed trade competen- mixed competency agreement. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, um, the, tra- the trade deal part of it is just a tiny part of it. And, and, and the least controversial part of it, actually, you know? Yeah. So a mixed competency agreement is where you have a trade agreement on one side of it, and then on the other side of it, you have the ICS or ISDS or, you know, the investor court system. And they both need different implementing. That's why it's mixed. Is it, 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 You know, one of them doesn't require ratification from individual countries, and the other one does. And that's where we have a problem, obviously, with we discussed, discussed this last week, is that they're trying to bring in Ireland's first ever investor court system that would override our own courts here. So company can, right now, a company, if, if they feel uh, the government has interfered with their profits, they can take them to the courts. They can go to uh, the high court or they can go wherever they want. But um, but this system is much more favorable towards uh, multinational companies and big investors because it's not going to be your local, you know, uh, bakery that's taken the state to court for interfering with their profits. You're talking about multinational companies that have more revenue than the actual state they're suing themselves, which, you know, for instance, we, we talked about this McKesson pharmacy, own Lloyd's pharmacy, three times the revenue of the Irish state. And we're talking about it as if it's going to be a level playing field. They have the money to take the Irish state to court. 20 million was what the Australian government spent on their legal fees for defending themselves against the plain packaging cigarette incident. 20 million euros uh, from Philip Morris. Now that's pittance to Philip Morris, but that's 20 million that could be spent on public housing, on healthcare, on on, on things that we all badly need right now. But um, Just before we move on, there's also rumours floating around kind of political circles that uh, the Green Party have been warned if they push on CETA, then uh, other members of government will push back on any movement on direct provision. So, you know, some of the compromises that were made in the programme for government that if they don't sign on for CETA, one of the wins the Green Party said they had under their belt was, you know, the abolition of direct provision and that that's being threatened now as well. So that's just kind of the dirty tricks they all play. Wow. Jesus. Um, and all the celebrations that the Green Party had about the direct provision stuff is the only reason that they were going into this thing. I mean, look. It just t- might give you an insight into why they can flip flop so quickly. Yeah. Yeah. And look, Fianna Fáil are down to 16%. I know, Steve, you have to go now in a second, so we'll get you in for a last contribution if you have anything to say. But Fianna Fáil are down to 16%. Now would be a really good time for the Green Party to pull the plug if they weren't concerned about themselves because Fianna Fáil and Michal Martin must be very, very nervous of what happens if an election is called. So, right, I'm moving on then. Um, We're going to talk now about the stardust uh, it's now today 40 years since the 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 was the 40 year anniversary since the event happened and look i'm not going to talk too much about it because claire you know an awful lot more about it than i do i'm going to i'm going to uh, divert myself towards you for for filling people in on 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 what's going on and and what happened 40 years ago uh yeah so I mean, as people who are regular listeners to the show might know my mom was in the stardust and she was very seriously injured um she you know was in the was in hospital for months she missed the original tribunal uh she had severe scarring on the majority of her body particularly like her arms and her back and so it was very visible for me as a child you know we always knew about the stardust we were always told about the stardust um and i suppose like even from a very young age i knew i always knew that there was a class element to it as well like there was a really strong feeling that 
what happened on the night was absolutely horrific. But then how they were treated afterwards was, was just compounded it and made it so much worse. So, you know, 40 years ago yesterday, my mom and a couple of her friends, she was 16 years old, went out to a nightclub to a disco down the road. And, um, you know, 48 young people didn't come home and a couple of hundred more were very severely injured. And then you had over 800 people with, you know, serious psychological inj- injury that was never addressed. And the from day one, you know, Charlie Hockey walking in for a photo op and walking all over the crime scene, um, a decision of arson from the first tribunal that benefited the owner who had chains on the doors and, uh, you know, paints and illegal flammable liquids upstairs that shouldn't have been used and just everything about the setup was was primed for disaster. And then they went into court and they lied. They lied and said there weren't chains on the doors and they lied and said that there weren't the wrong partitions between walls and the wrong flammable liquids and paints and, and the paints that did so much damage. And um, anybody that follows me on social media, or I think they might retweet on the week at work. Uh, my mom wrote a poem over the past couple of days. It's, you know, it's a long one, it's about 30 minutes long. It's absolutely harrowing to listen to, but I think it's really powerful and I think people should really listen to it if they can, because it brings you right back there. It brings you what, you know, very vivid what it was like to be there and what it was like afterwards so again I said how they were treated they were just forgotten about they had to fight for justice and are still fighting for justice 40 years later there's been report after report that left information out that you know missed vital evidence that didn't you know interview some of the most important people who could prove the fire started in a different place which is what the crux of um the argument has always been it couldn't have been arson because very similar to Hillsborough which is you know another tragedy that a lot of people know about the finding of arson which it was found years later for there to be no basis of and basically led to Eamon Butterly being able to cash out in a massive insurance claim. Um, basically laid the blame on the victims. It laid the blame on the people in there and said that one of them had started it. So again, very similar to Hillsborough, that somebody in the crowd had started. And if you you put the suspicion out there, that it could have been somebody, it could have been anybody. So I know families who not only did 48 young people die, but the deaths from suicide, from addiction, people that drank themselves to death, whether they were people that were there or their their fathers, their mothers, you know, family members, the the absolute devastation in the area for decades. And it's 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 the kind of genera- intergenerational trauma that is still felt. It's felt by people's grandkids. It's it's impacting people's relationship with their with their family. It's impacting people's ability to move on. People some people, like Savannah Keegan, has fought for this. It has been her whole life for 40 years. And it's gone on so long that like Christine Keegan, one of the most vocal and strongest campaigners on this, died last year. And she died just before the inquest was actually announced. And that is just devastating to too many people. Um, Eugene Kelly, another man who everywhere you'd go, you'd see him with a picture of his, of his brother. And he was, a you know, a, an incredible speaker. His anger and his emotion shone through every single time he spoke. And it's just devastating to think that he didn't make it to the inquest. So... And there's more, there are literally people, there was another announcement on the Stardust page, just for the Stardust 48 um, page the other day, that another father of somebody that passed away had died. So the parents of children that died are now dying. People that were in the Stardust are dying. You know, it's been 40 years and all we want is for people to live, to see the state apologise, the state give them the reason for how their loved ones died, to tell them that what happened to them wasn't... um wasn't okay and that their lives had value because my mom would always tell us how they were treated like they were worthless like their lives had no value and that never would have happened in another area of Dublin that never would have happened in another area of Dublin it never would have happened if they weren't working class and if they had more agency and if they their parents were you know barristers or judges or doctors or you know people seen as more respectable in society and um and that's why this has been allowed to go on for 40 years. I mean, I think the political element, the fact that Fianna Fáil have in some way been in government for most of the past 40 years um, is a big part of it as well, because the level of complicity and the level of cover-ups that have happened, um, I think that when this all unravels, it's going to be very damaging. So we're nearly there. I mean, the inquest has been announced. The judge for the inquest seems really, she put a statement up on the website the other day, which apparently isn't the norm, and it's... Um, recognising the 40th anniversary and paying tribute to the victims and the families and talking about pen portraits, which is an, you know is a way to, before an inquest starts, every family writes a piece about to humanise the person 
So it's not just 48 as a number. These were individual people who were loved and had lives before this happened and their life was taken. So, yeah, it's um, it's been a really emotional week. It's been a really tough week um, because if it turns out now that the funding for this for the inquest, Dara Macken looks after 46 of the 48 uh, families and Dara was involved in the Valley Murphy uh, inquest. So he knows what he's talking about. He's been trying to contact the Department of Justice for months now about the funding because they've gone down a legal aid route which he thinks is will delay things and also will cost more than if they use the kind of system that was used over in um it's in uh hills in the likes of Hillsborough. So but they're stonewalling them and they're not answering them, which it's just really frustrating to be on the 40th anniversary and to know that this is going to be delayed again. I mean COVID obviously already delayed it. It was supposed to be in um Dublin Castle, it's now been moved to the RDS because it's going to be the biggest and longest running inquest in the history of the state. It's also going to have massive implications for how we run inquests going into the future. I mean, Vicky Comer made a good point about like our, our inquest system are absolutely horrific. There's only like two places in Ireland, Dublin is one of them, where there's actually a Georgian staff. It's, it's the guards in most places. And I mean, in a situation like this, the guards are an element in the investigation. Like my mom, when she was in hospital, gave evidence when she was in no position to be given evidence but they came back and tried to get her to change her statement to say that there weren't locks on the doors the guards did so the guards are complicit in what happened in the stardust everybody is complicit that was involved in what happened in the stardust like there is you know when i say everybody i mean the kind of arms of the state like it was it was just so horrifically managed um i want to so i want to be clear that i'm not talking about the likes of double fire brigade who are absolute heroes and recognized and you know have been a support to the families every decades since and that the healthcare staff and the doctors and the nurses who all have their own PTSD and trauma from that night and most you know a lot of them aren't alive today but again in, in my mom's poem and we'll post on the timeline is that she talks about the tears in the doctor's eyes when they had to treat me because they didn't have any of the technology they had today they had to put people with horrific wounds into salt baths and use caustic sticks and you know just 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 horrific trauma that everybody went through and we're so close now to seeing the closure and seeing some justice and for people to be told the truth and for it to be acknowledged. And it's just such, it's time. I think it's just such an emotional day today. There's a vigil now, I'm going to be starting in a couple of minutes. Um, so I'm going to have to head off, but it, it happens every year. The Stardust site is going to be Zoom this year because of social distancing. But um, I just ask anybody who's listening, share the stories of people who are talking about it. Please share the stories. Um, remind the government that, the, just because the campaign is over and the inquest has started, that support is still needed. Um, you need to put pressure on them to make sure that they don't drag this out and that funding is allocated the way it needs to be and that families are given justice and nobody else is lost. Like my nana died a couple of two months before the inquest was announced, like that it was going to happen, not the date, but that it was going to happen. And she fought for years and years, you know, um, campaigned and protested and went to meetings and. And it's just devastating that they never got to see justice. And I just don't want anybody else to die before that happens. Um, yeah, so I just ask everybody to please contact your local TDs, share people's stories on social media. You know, there's a whole generation of people who don't know you, do you the status? So please, you know, bring it back into the public consciousness for those. Yeah, I, look, thanks, Claire. Um, I just want to give the plug to uh, your mother's poem because it's fabulous. I listened to it and, you know, I got found myself getting very emotional about it. I have very little connection to, to the stardust through, you know, victims or, or, or anything, but the descriptions in the poem are like, it, it's a difficult listen, but it's so descriptive and it gets you into, it makes you feel like you're there. Like it gives you a bit of an, an understanding of, of because sometimes you read articles or you read books about things and they don't have that much of an impact, but hearing your mom's voice is just so powerful. And that's what we need to share. And, it's up on our Facebook page. Uh, we shared it yesterday. Oh, okay. uh, Trisha O'Connor. Uh, it's on the Left Block Facebook page. Um, it's being shared around. So have a listen to it. it spend the 12, 13 minutes, just sink, let it all sink in and then imagine the torture that people had to go through, not just on the night, but for the 40 years since that they didn't need to go through because it could have been done. It could have been sorted if they didn't want to do a cover up. It could have been sorted almost immediately um, if the political will was there to do so. Yeah, and I mean, just even on that idea, listening to, like my mum, the survivor's guilt that people were left with was just absolutely excruciating. Like she has never really spoken publicly about it and she was, 
one of the last people to leave hospital. Like she was horrifically injured, and she, at you know, me, my nana and my auntie were heavily involved in the campaign and the protest. I mean, mom used to go to things at the start, but she kind of ran as far away from that as she could. Then she said she, you know, needed to get as far away from it as possible mentally, and just she didn't feel like she had the right because she had lived. Mm. I, I think that actually comes across even in the poem. Uh, you can hear about that. It's subtle. She doesn't say it explicitly, but you can actually tell that there's a, a little bit of sorrow in her voice that she survived or not even sorrow, um, but guilt, as you say. So um, it's, yeah, I mean, I can't do much. You, you know, you feel so helpless about this stuff. You can't do much more than just to say to people, find out about it, understand it. And that helps you to understand the system and, and why these, and trying to understand, as you've talked about there, Claire, about why these people, of all people, had to go through this in the same way that the people of Hillsborough had to go through theirs. The linkages are so close. And then even Bloody Sunday, the, the, you know, the, the fight that these families, working class families, all of them, have to go through to get to the truth. And that's all it is. We're looking for the and truth. Why, and why did it take two young lads from Belfast, like two young solicitors in their 20s, to come down to Dublin and speak to the families with an idea of how to eventually achieve justice? Mm-hmm. You know, it's been decades and all the evidence has been there in the campaign and the, the committee and the families, like they've been approaching people for decades. But I suppose it is the understanding of what happened up the north, the level of collusion, and there's much, probably more of an acceptance that it happened up there and there's a bit more of a refusal to accept what happens down here. Um, and so Darren Mackin and his team, who have been involved in these kind of cases, were able to see the bigger picture and able to see a route to justice. And we're just incredibly grateful for the work that they're doing um, and, you know, eventually bringing you know, bringing us to a, a justice and truth. Well, on that powerful note, I think we'll um, we'll sign off on this episode. Um, I'm David Gibney. I'm your host. I'm joined by Claire O'Connor, my co-host. But we want to thank uh, Stefano Nulon as well from Trademark Belfast. Um, the Week at Work is part of Left Block, uh, www.patreon.com forward slash left block. Block with a C, no K. Uh, and again, look, thanks. And listen, Claire, I know it's difficult to talk about that stuff. So we want to thank you, especially this week, because it's just, it's something that needs to be told. And we need to speak about it. And people need to hear about it because we're of a, there's listeners to this podcast who weren't alive. I, I was only a year old when 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 the stardust happened. So, um, and I thought I knew everything about it until I listened to your mom's poem. And then I, I hear even more information that I hadn't a clue about. So even the, the, the illegal paint. So again, share, go on to our Facebook and Twitter pages, have a listen to the poem. It's absolutely fantastic it's powerful it's descriptive it's got so much emotion to it and uh, it's the voice of uh, uh, somebody who was actually there that night so and um, thanks again everybody we'll talk to you all, all next week <laughs>